Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, I talk to legendary Irish director Thaddeus O'Sullivan about his new movie, The Miracle Club, which sees a group of women in 1960s working class Dublin head to Lourdes looking for, well, miracles. Booker Prize winner John Banville chats to me about his favourite film. And Chris Wasser reviews the week's new movie releases. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm. Good weekend to you all, and I do hope you're well. The biggest thing that happened to me this week, you know, despite interviewing BAFTA-winning directors and Booker Prize winners, was the arrival and departure of a skip in our house. Yes, we had a skip and we were cleaning out just the stuff that masses up. We hadn't had a skip in about four years and we got rid of a lot of toys, actually. But, you know, stuff that's been in your house that you no longer need. It's a very strange, pleasing feeling having a skip. I'm sure if you've had one, you'll agree. This, you know, people talk about decluttering, but when you have a skip, you know, it's not just like you're bringing stuff to the bring center or putting it in a bin. But when you have this large, gaping chasm of a skip in your driveway and you're just able to fling stuff in that's been an eyesore every morning you've woken up for the last year or whatever it is, there's something very pleasing about it. The power of the skip. Now, to movies and TV shows, I quickly en route to the TV I was watching this week, I, I noticed a new trailer for Wonka. Uh, which is out on the 8th of December. In case you haven't heard, Timothy Chalamet is playing Willy Wonka in kind of an origin story. I watched the trailer. Like, it looks fine. Hugh Grant plays an Oompa Loompa in it and he's his funny self. But I just, I'm just of the feeling Willy Wonka is one of those people who doesn't need an origin story. All Willy Wonka really needs is the movie with Gene Wilder, in my humble opinion. So, I, for one, am not jumping up and down about it. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. Now, it's they're not going to stop it at this stage. It's locked and loaded. But uh, I don't think the world needs a Wonka origin story. I'm sorry. I realize I could be proved wrong, but let's see. Let's see. Now, on TV this week, I was watching this. I'm not an act. What you see is what you get. We'll be in touch. He's our man. He was one of the biggest manipulators of people to rise to the status that he did. The investigation found no evidence to justify the allegations. And do you consider that to be the end of the matter? He groomed the whole nation. There are rumours that there's another side to you. What rumours might those be? He gets away with it because no one else sees it. It's a violation. As old as I am now, I would have danced on his grave. Now, that is a clip from The Reckoning on BBC, which started on Monday night. You've probably heard about this because this is a much-talked-about TV show where Steve Coogan plays Jimmy Savile. And as the title implies, it's all about what happened with Jimmy Savile and the reckoning of that and how the BBC were at pains on many occasions to literally cover it up, uh, his severe and horrific abuse of often minors. Now, this has gotten a lot of coverage for, for very understandable reasons. The way they've done it is there is real-life victims talking, kind of bookending each episode. There is also some real-life footage of Jimmy Savile, and then largely it is Steve Coogan playing Jimmy Savile, playing from the 70s on. And it begins with Savile being accosted, the wrong word, a journalist who's going to write a book about him and in his house. And he's looking back on his life. Now, the first thing to say is that Steve Coogan is absolutely tremendous as Jimmy Savile. He really is. He's, he's darkly compelling. He's really captured him. But I suppose the problem with this is that it's the question of, do we really need this? Because there have been a good few documentaries and a lot of coverage about Jimmy Savile already, and nothing is really going to change. Now, 
this has some of the victims buy-in, obviously, and, and they've been interviewed for it. So they're happy to to be part of this, and, and it's their word we should take above all else's. But there's just a slight feeling of, do we really need this anymore? We know this horrific tale. And I had somewhat of a misgiving watching it because I just felt the world doesn't need this because we know this story and in a way it's perpetuating it to a certain extent i had this slight feeling and there was quite a telling remark by my wife in that she watched the first one with me and bowed out about 20 minutes from the end because she had to go to bed and then we watched the second one and she said oh sure it doesn't matter if i've missed it i know what's going to happen and for all steve Coogan's brilliant performance in this. We know what this tale is. We know that it's him abusing in horrific situations all sorts of vulnerable people. So I'd love to know what you thought and if you might have watched The Reckoning on BBC. There are two more parts of it to come. But if I wasn't watching it for the purposes of this show, I may have stopped. And that's of no disrespect to any of the players, but simply because. I'm not sure if we need it. Uh, so as I say, I'd love to know what you might think. And it's funny, just to close this out, I was, well, not funny is the wrong word, but a couple of people I said, who I would often ask, did you watch this on TV? They said, no, I just can't kind of bring myself to do it. So as I say, do let me know if you might have watched it, John underscore Fardy on Twitter, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. And now we turn now to some of the week's new movie releases. This week, we're going to be looking at a movie called The Burial, which lands on Amazon Prime this week. And also a very unusual film called Nandor Fyodor and the Talking Mongoose. Well, it's unusually named, if nothing else. Delighted to be joined now by arts critic and film reviewer, Chris Wasser. Chris, hello. How are you? John, happy to be here. How are you? Good, 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 good. So listen, The Burial... On Amazon, yeah, I don't think you and I have done an Amazon movie, but they they do make movies, and there's one of them landing this very week, uh, October thirteenth, on Amazon. Jamie Fox as a lawyer who refers to himself in the third person a lot. That's him. That's that that that's the one. Uh, yeah, yeah, the burial is actually arriving on Prime Video, but uh, it received a very limited cinema release in the UK and in America too. I don't think in Ireland, um, but it would be great to see this up on the big screen because it's one of the best things that Jamie Foxx has done in a long time. So you're right. It, this is a true story, or at least it's inspired by true events because you know dramatic license has been taken in some areas. And Fox is playing the flashy lawyer in the early '90s named Willie Edward Gary. And as you said, he likes to refer to himself a lot in the in you know in the the third person he's a millionaire lawyer he takes on personal injury claims a lot and he never loses or at least he hasn't lost a case in 12 years which is a lifetime in the law he doesn't do contractual disputes but that all changes after this funeral homeowner who's in a bit of a sticky financial situation his name is jeremiah o'keefe he's portrayed by the great tommy lee jones jeremiah comes knocking on willie's door in 1995 and he says i have a bit of a problem and he's with this uh, uh, and he's with his uh, legal team and they explain that he was supposed to sell on some of his funeral homes to a corporate leech named Raymond Lowen, played play by uh, character actor Bill Camp. And the deal was all set to go, but then it just took an extra month, an extra two months, an extra four months. And it turns out the deal is just dodgy and that this corporate leech is waiting for the businesses to just, or for O'Keefe to be in even worse financial trouble. So it's all a bit of a mess. And O'Keefe says, look, I'm going to sue this guy. He's after, you know, he's after ruining me effectively. And everyone involved on O'Keefe's team thinks that this is a bigger case than, let's say, a six or eight million dollar uh, a contractual dispute that this might actually lead to something massive uh, and that people will be talking about this case for years and of course mr william you know willie e gary he loves a bit of publicity and he kind of sees scope for this turning into something huge so he pushes aside the fact that he's a personal injuries lawyer and he says i'm on board and away we go Right. Now, from the, the clips I've watched, I haven't seen it all, but from the clips I've watched, it's very funny. He has his own plane called Wings of Justice. This yes, is a Jamie yeah. Fox character. He's he's very much all about himself. But And it's not a spoiler necessarily, but does he then somewhere along the line realize this case really matters and it's not just about making a name for himself? 
that's it. That's it. Because, you know, initially Alan Rook, uh, you know, who would have seen uh, more recently in succession, but of course is, you know, uh, uh, most famous for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, he <laughs> is Jeremiah O'Keefe's lawyer. But this case is going to be tried in Mississippi and it's going to be tried in a part of the country where uh, there is a bigger uh, black population. Uh, so the most of the jury will be black and also the chances of there being a black uh, judge are high. And Alan Rook's character being Jeremiah O'Keefe He's Alan Brooks' character side, me, Jeremiah O'Keefe's uh, lawyer. He is quite prejudiced. He's actually quite racist. And so, you know, uh, Jeremiah has a new legal team that says you need someone who, you need someone, a better man representing you. So that's essentially why Willie Gary is brought in. But then we start to see that O'Keefe himself hires an African American uh, lawyer. And, but, but on top of that, then we see that the, 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 the case actually exposes this rotten core to America's so called death care industry. And just to explain that, it basically means that you had people like what I said, like Raymond Lone and, and these big death care providers charging minorities more, you know, for, for, for funerals and specifically African-American communities where they were coming in and saying, you know, giving prices for funerals that were three times higher than what they would have for, 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 for white customers, for white people like coming in to pay for the funerals. So there's an awful lot of dirty business going on in here. And that's why Gary and that's why, you know, other lawyers are interested in this case because it turned out to be a huge one. So it's a very serious story here. And you don't think that that's necessarily going to, you know, translate into a comedy, but it does because Fox realizes that Gary is this character and he's, he, he is bigger than life and Fox can do, you know, that, 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 big character he can do that big uh you know he there, there are an awful lot of scenes here where fox is required to go above and beyond and he's very good at doing that i was just thinking the whole time god if this guy has the right material he is so good because we've kind of gotten used to him john doing basically just kind of you know bottom shelf actioners over the last few years mm, yeah absolutely look from the bits i've seen of it he's absolutely hilarious and you know if he was chocolate he'd eat himself or kiss himself or whatever you know he does that brilliantly in this that he's this really suave lawyer and as i say the plain wings of justice he's a great like because he is a stand-up or started as a stand-up he's serious comic chops and as you say it's a shame i suppose we don't see them more no, it is a shame that we don't see them more, but it is actually the second decent Jamie Foxx, the second grace Jamie Foxx performs of 2023. He's also, he also plays a blinder in this underappreciated sci-fi on Netflix called They Clone Tyrone, which you haven't seen it, rectify that. Um, mm. But yeah, he is a star performer here, but he's also working, you know, sparking off of uh, a very impressive and, and an interest. When Tommy Lee Jones is interested in the material, we're interested too. That's a, you know that it, that's always nice to see because this role that he's playing was actually originally considered for Harrison Ford, and Ford would have done a great job. But Tommy Lee, he's in, you know, he's invested in this. Great support as well from Journey Smollett, uh, from 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 Alan Rook, from Bill Camp. It's sort of a you know, it's a David versus Goliath uh, story, and it's also a courtroom drama. And those kinds of films worked very well in the '90s, and this one is set in the '90s. There seems to be an intentional effort from the writer and director Maggie Betts and everyone else involved to make it look as though it was made in the '90s. And you know what? That's fine. You know, because yeah. it walk it, because it just it's 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 supposed to be old school. It's supposed to be loud. There's an awful you know there's an awful lot, as, as I said big performances in here. We don't see those kinds of films too often anymore. So it's nice when one comes along that is genuinely entertaining. Okay, so the courtroom drama in the 90s. So is this reminiscent of, I don't know, some John Grisham stuff from the 90s? Or I'm trying to think of other 90s courtroom dramas. I know exactly what you mean. I just can't think of any at the moment. No, that's true. It, it, there's a little bit of that in it, but it, it is a little bit lighter. You know, there is that kind right, of... Yeah. Look, you could have like a checklist, John, of all of the... all of the, the A dialogue checklist, let's say. Someone is bound to come burst into a room at one stage and say, I think we found something. Another lawyer is bound <laughs> to burst in and say, we have a snowball chance in hell of winning this case but i had so much fun listening to all that or even just waiting for these big moments to happen or for the camera to just kind of zoom in on the on on the lawyer just as they're about to crack this case it's it's that sort of film but as i said we don't see them uh, all that often and it's very well acted very well put together i really enjoyed this Okay, so what are you going to say stars wise for the burial on you call the Prime Video? Is it still is it still called Amazon Prime Video or Amazon yeah. or are, you, are we contractually obliged to say Prime Video now without the Amazon? I don't know. Maybe we should bring in a lawyer for that. But I think uh, they do. I, <laughs> oh, do very good. I, I think they do prefer to be called Prime Video these days. But it is hard to kind of separate it from the fact that you know it's an Amazon yeah. property. Um, I'd say four stars out of five for wow, um, for okay. the burial. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's take a quick clip of the burial. 
Willie Gary case is the type of case where I have the upper hand, where I feel that I can take this case to trial. Understand? All the way. And, and once I get him in that trial, I mean, y'all see my tape. When I get him in, in in front of, especially in front of people that, that look like me, I'm gonna play him like a symphony. Mm, Mozart. A Willie Gary case is where I could take that judgment and push it all the way up to the heavens if I need to, and get as much money as I can for my client. Uh, what he's saying is a Willie Gary case is a case we know we could win. This case, not so much. Matter of fact. Your case a little bit iffy. That was a clip from The Burial and Jamie Foxx in fine form, as are the other players, most notably Tommy Lee Jones. And it's on Prime Video, Amazon Prime Video, and Chris Wasser gave it four stars. Now, seemingly on a retainer from Prime Video this week, Chris Wasser is bringing us another movie. Now, it isn't out from Prime, another movie from Prime. It isn't out this week, but we are going to be chocker blocker next week with things like Killers of the Flower Moon that I just wanted to get to it because whatever type of movie it is, it has the most unusual name of this year and perhaps any other. It's called Nandor Fidor and the Talking Mongoose. What a title, John. Yeah, the real yeah. life story behind this film is just fascinating. Um, and if anything, I probably had more fun reading about it than I did watching it uh, because it concerns this young family, the Irvangs, on the Isle of Man, who in the 1930s, um, started telling their neighbors and then subsequently the wider world, uh, once the media got a hold of us, that a talking mongoose named Jeff was living in their farmhouse. Now, that's, <laughs> straight away, you're thinking, I'm on board. That's yeah. it. Like, you yeah, say no more. Yeah. <laughs> Take my money, Prime Video. Um, but they claimed that this, you know, yappy furball trespasser, um, who, by the way, was said to have been heard by, you know, quite a few of the locals, but only seen by maybe two or three of them. This Jeff thing, you know, became a tabloid sensation. And you had parapsychologists from all over Europe and all over the world, actually, stopping by the Isle of Man and conducting their investigations to determine whether or not Jeff was real. And one such case involved this uh, guy named Nander Fodor, uh, who in this film is portrayed by Simon Pegg, who just thought, not, I'm not having any of this. He's, he, was de- he was just determined to debunk the legend of Jeff. Um, mm-hmm. So this film follows uh, himself. Uh, he actually, he has this meeting for us, and these are all real people. He has this meeting with uh, a trusted colleague by the name of Harry Price. Always a pleasure to see Christopher Lloyd uh, a, a pop up in a film like this. Uh, it's basically yeah. John's Christopher Lloyd being Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> but um, the problem he, with that, though, he's he's playing this guy Harry Price, who, as I said, existed, and he did visit the Isle of Man, and he came back and said. I don't know what to do about this. I really don't know what to believe. So Nando Ford thinks, right, I'll go off and have a look. But, you know, all of these strange things start happening. He does actually have this interaction with Jeff. We don't actually see Jeff on screen, but we hear him. He's voiced by Neil Gaiman. And apparently, John, that the mongoose knows things about Nando's life that he couldn't possibly know. So you have this mm. case where Nando starts to, you know, kind of just have this absolute, you know, existential crisis. His long-suffering assistant, Anne, played by Mini Driver, she starts to buy into the madness. It's just, it's, it's, it's barmy stuff. And so Nandor, he, what's his profession? He's a parapsychologist, which parapsychologist. I, only, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, these are, these are jobs that, that I didn't know existed, John. And if I knew they yeah. existed, I might've gone into it myself, but it was in, their in, job in to, you, uh, <laughs> you could have run around, you know, Dublin trying to talk to Mongoose if, if you had known, but sorry. So he's a para, he's a parapsychologist. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like professionals, you know, who kind of like seek out, you know, paranormal activity and kind of visit sites to see if all of these, you know, uh, barmy stories, if they're, yeah. if they're made up or if there might be something in it. Um, so he is there kind of, you know, on one hand, he's, you know, he's wearing a science head, but on another, you kind of get the feeling that he wants to believe and that there's, yeah. you know, there, there's a dead father involved, you know, his father is, is not long past. And, and you can kind of see that like, he might be, he takes this kind of weird pleasure in telling people that the ghosts that they claim to have seen aren't real, but you get the feeling that he wants to see something. He really wants there to be something else. Yeah. Um, and he's also, you know, he's also kind of that, you know, quintessential uh, uh, film, um, you know, investigator who, you know, drinks too much and is rude to everyone. So quite an mm-hmm. interesting player, a, a character to work with. The only problem is I don't know if Simon Pegg was right for him. Yeah. So listen, right, let, let's get to that then, because, you know, intriguing source material, we hear the mongoose, whether we see him or not, uh, voiced by Neil Gaiman, as you say, set on the Isle of Man, I have a soft spot for it, it was the first holiday I ever took, the first time I was ever out of the country, a boat to the Isle of Man, so I kind of always halfway in the door when anything's, and very few things are, set on the Isle of Man, but there's a lot going on there, does it all come together? 
Unfortunately, it doesn't because going into this, I thought, well, you know, you're getting at least uh, one star for that title, like you know, yeah, or at least yeah, yeah. we'll start we'll start with five stars for the title, so and work our way back. Yeah. Um, and a film with that title, it should be fun and it should be playful and it should just be, you know, it should embrace that bonker side. It doesn't really know what to do with itself, and I think the problem starts with Simon Pace casting. He is working hard and he is trying to make something of it, but I couldn't see past the. I I just I couldn't see anything other than simon pegg acting and, th- and that that's a problem he okay. just he's never really that comfortable with the character and also it requires him to have this uh peculiar hungarian american accent because you know nanda Fordo was from hungary uh, uh went to america at one stage uh then actually kind of settled in the uk so it's quite an unusual accent to work with and it's quite cartoonish when it's coming out of simon pegg's mouth so i, I couldn't really see past that we have mini driver playing this long-suffering assistant who may or may not have a thing for Nanda Ford or her boss, and that's never really developed. Uh, we also have this thing, we also have a show and tell problem here that there's an awful lot of flashbacks and people explaining things and people telling you about their own experiences with Jeff, and the narration just kind of suffocates everything that we're seeing on screen. It's just just either show it to us or just have Christopher Lloyd tell us about it. Like, don't do both. It's just, it's too much. You're explaining too much. So it's kind of exhausting. Tone-wise, it's, it's a little bit toneless. You know, I kind of wanted it to be hilarious, and, and you can tell that everyone involved wanted it to be hilarious, but it, it never is. Um, and just in terms of the the uh, answering some questions, it doesn't answer anything. I won't give away, you know, what happened or, you know, how the Jeff story ended, but it tries to just, wrap things up in too many ways it's just it's i was i was a little bit confused i had to actually go off and read and i enjoyed reading about it afterwards but it doesn't really have any sort of resolve and with a film with that title and with that sort of story you you can't just leave it up to the viewer to go off and investigate everything afterwards you have to have something there to say at least how part of the story ended so i was quite underwhelmed by it Okay, so no satisfying conclusion, which, as you say, a movie title that uh, clearly needs one. So what are you going to say stars-wise for the unusually named Nandor Foydor and the Talking Mongoose? I appreciate the effort and I appreciate the tale, but it's a good story badly told, so I'm going to have to go with two stars out of five. Okay, two stars out of five for, again... Nandor, Fyodor and the Talking Mongoose I'm kind of enjoying saying it now which is on Prime Video from next week October 20th it's two stars for that and prior to that he gave a whopping four to The Burial which you can see from this Friday the 13th of October also on Prime Video Chris Wasser thanks a million and I look forward to chatting with you in depth about Killers of the Flower Moon next week Nice one John I look forward to it Up next director Thaddeus O'Sullivan on his new movie The Miracle Club Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now opening this weekend in cinemas is The Miracle Club, which follows female friendship across generations in a community in the late 60s in working class Dublin, where the Catholic Church reigns supreme. A bus trip to Lourdes becomes more than a pilgrimage as each of the women involved look for answers to very different questions. Having never even left Dublin, let alone Ireland, the journey provides our heroines the chance to let down their hair, celebrate their life and delight in some sweet independence, all the while perhaps confronting some painful memories from the past. And many of those stories and painful memories involve motherhood and relationships with children. The cast includes a staggering array of people, really. Dame Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, Laura Linney, Agnes O'Casey, Stephen Ray, and our old favourite Mark O'Halloran. The Miracle Club was directed by award-winning director Thaddeus O'Sullivan, whose credits go all the way back to December Bride and Ordinary Decent Criminal, as well as directing shows, TV shows like Shetland, and more recently, Hidden Assets. I learned a long time ago, never to refer to anyone as a veteran but Thaddeus O'Sullivan has been doing this a long time and I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Thaddeus how are you? Uh, Very good Uh, I'm happy to be called a veteran I don't mind at all. (laughs) Excellent well uh, I mean it as a compliment. So listen with that veteran status let's say why did you want to make a movie that kind of at its source or at source point has lords at at its centre? The original description of this film, the, the strap line, if you like, was uh, a bunch of women go to Lourdes looking for a miracle. And <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was an easy story to build on, uh, an easy uh, uh, idea uh, to sort of um, 
um, bring something to that because, um, you know, as a kid, like most Irish kids, uh, we're very conscious of Lourdes in the, in the uh, culture, Catholic culture. And uh, everybody we knew had been on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. And um, so that was interesting. Um, my, my parents had made, made quite a significant um, uh, trip to Lourdes um, in, in the 50s, which is very important to them. Uh, but also the idea of um, pilgrimage. I think it was um, interesting to me, um, the idea of leaving your home and and heading for somewhere where the full intention was to open yourself up to um, uh, something uh, perhaps unknown, uh, spiritual. Um, and the idea, of, I suppose, that led me to think about uh, that that it was a sort of road movie um mm. the, the classic form of road movie is you know you, you you leave the thing that you know behind for whatever reason and um and you head off into the unknown and um i guess in a sense uh lourdes is i mean for for a lot of people to go to lourdes it's a it's a ritual that's very familiar but for others it becomes something quite exciting because it's mm. something uh, unexpected. Uh, they have very high expectations of Lourdes, um, people who, who um, know of it and understand it. Um, but there's a lot of people who go there, and uh, it's a sort of, um, let's just see what happens. And yeah. that's interesting too. I should say, your your take on Lourdes is, is both respectful, but also honest. So this is neither you sending it up or, or, or wholeheartedly believing it, just in case people think this is some, I don't know, apologia for the Catholic Church. It, it, it's far from that. And, and, and just on that, I mean, there are some... What, what I liked about this is the women in it, they're there in Lourdes, but they're... You know, they're discussing things like abortion. They're they're talking about grief. And these are Irish women in the 60s. And, you know, we look back at the 60s and we think that, you know, everyone was kowtowing to the Catholic Church and kowtowing to what was the right thing to do. But I, I imagine back in the 1960s, these conversations were being had as well. Like, I, I, that seems to be what the film is partially saying. Well, if I can personalize it for a moment... Um... I remember uh, just thinking about these women, uh, and I, I remember uh, my mother, uh, my family are a strict Catholic family, and that, that's how I was uh, reared, um, like many others um, in Ireland. And uh, what I, I always suspected that my mother had this has a sort of uh, a skepticism that somehow the faith was um, very much worn in her sleeve, like everybody else. They, they performed all the rituals, but there was always a bit of themselves they kept uh, separate. Um, yeah. As you could, uh, you could take it as a sort of cult. Uh, what was going on in the in the fifties and sixties and and earlier, the sense that they they had such a, 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 a the country enthrall really to the church in so many different ways, including um, uh, the politics. And I think that um, some of these women then just go on, uh, move on to the film. Some of these uh, women had, a, a, you know, they keep a side of them to themselves. And I think it's that side that um, emerges uh, in Lourdes because we had uh, several writers on this. Jimmy Smallhorn, of course, was the original writer. But uh, I work with another writer uh, very closely um, uh, on that, who'd, who'd been to Lourdes quite a lot. And uh, we used to talk about, you know, for people who were not particularly religious, when they would get to Lourdes, they would, they would get quite overwhelmed by being in the company of people who express mm. their spirituality so so beautifully, so silently and so personally. And mm. uh, people are affected by that. And we wanted to honor that's too grand a word, but we wanted to respect that, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And, and to give a sense that um, it's not just Lourdes, it is, it's making a pilgrimage to a place that is important to you. And um, it doesn't matter. The, the priest says in our film, um, when he's asked, uh, do, do you think that St. Bernadette really appeared here? And he says, 
well, whether she did or whether she didn't is not important in the end. Mm, yeah. There is something in that for a lot of people because, like I say, once you get there, you're in the community of people who have a common purpose, and that's a very powerful thing to be around. Sure, yeah. Tell me this. It's very much about women. Of course, there are men in as well in motherhood. You have, it's no exaggeration to say, some of the greatest living actresses. I mean, I mentioned there Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, Laura Linney uh, and uh, Agnes O'Casey as well, as she's a relative newcomer. But I mean, you know, does it go back to your veteran status? Do you just because it's you, you're able to get these people, or was it was it hard to get them to you know to come well, to Dublin? And you know, I'll be honest. Um, uh, it was um, like a lot of um, uh, projects when they're in development for a very long time. Directors and producers come and go. And it just um, it came it came to me in two thousand and six originally. HBO, okay. HBO uh, approached me, and it didn't work out at that time. And uh, and so then it sort of went away and it came back a couple of years ago. And um, um, so I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. I guess the original producer had remembered that I'd been involved all those years ago, and they asked me to come back in. And um, uh, he probably couldn't give another name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I went back in and, uh, of course, uh, you know, a lot of time had passed and uh, my attitude to the story had pretty much uh, changed quite a bit. So yeah. uh, I went to work with um, Tim Prager, who's the writer I'm talking about, um, uh, on on a new draft. And um, that was how I got involved. Uh, yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, they, they would look at me and think, well, he's he's done a lot, you know, he's done yeah. all, all kinds of different things. So we should be okay. But, um, yeah. you know, I did talk to them, you know, long before we shot. Um, sure. But, um, you know, it, it's, um, and I'm Irish, and uh, that would be uh, important to them to feel mm-hmm. that um, because they were coming into a culture that was new to them, uh, that I would be able to answer the questions that would be required, you know. Yeah. And uh, I mentioned Agnes O'Casey. She's the great-grandniece of Sean O'Casey. Is that right? Uh, that's right, yes. Wow. Isn't that incredible? Uh, and here she is in, in a movie about Dublin and Lourdes. Uh, I mean, I've nothing to say about that other than isn't that, isn't that funny in circles we move, as I always Lovely. say, you know. Yeah, no, it's lovely. Um, for somebody so young, I couldn't quite get over how how rooted she was, um, grounded, I should say, uh, she was in that in that sense of um, uh, getting on with the work and knowing pretty much what you wanted to do and not being um, uh, rattled uh, um, by the great talent around her. In in mm. fact, of course. They were incredibly helpful. They all are towards towards other actors and to crew. Um, mm. I found them all um, obviously very professional, but in that way as well, which is not always uh, the case. They yeah. were very easy. The crew loved being around them, and they loved being on the set. Uh, well, Agnes is, has great presence, I have to say. She seems like a real natural. Tell me this. Uh, just, I mentioned December Bride there. You know, I've spoken to Jim Sheridan and a couple of other people who have been involved in, in, in the movie Making Businesses Ireland from the 80s and the early 90s. And particularly with Jim Sheridan, like he kind of said something along the lines of, you know, me and Noel Pearson going off trying to make a movie here in Dublin. You know, it was almost like we were from another planet because there wasn't really a muse or a movie business i mean did were, did you have that similar feeling when you were starting out that this is unknown territory that we all might fail terribly at oh uh, of course i but we never really thought about it in those terms um i guess it's only when you look back i suppose yeah i mean we just um had an instinct to make I mean, I had a bit of a leg up in the sense that I I had gone to art school and film school in London, so uh, I, I was sort of a, a graduated into it, if you like, and um, and then I kind of uh, um, uh, bonded with the uh, emerging Irish filmmakers, uh, and um, but they were coming from a much rawer place, if you like. There wasn't re- it was nothing until the Irish Film Board was set up, and um, and then at least there was that, but. If you had um, interest from the Irish Film Board and you went abroad with that in, with that interest, that was massively helpful. So you could go to Germany or Italy or uh, wherever, and you could go to TV stations there and say, "Look, uh, we have a, a domestic 
um, interest in this project, um, would you be interested in coming along? So you could uh, form relationships within Europe um, with the with the, the heft of the Irish Film Board behind you. And it mm. was when the Irish Film Board collapsed. That was an absolute disaster. Um, the the early collapse of it before it came back again, and of course uh, when it came back again, it has been incredibly supportive and significant in developing in the Irish film industry. Yeah, and do you have a sense? And again, I I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but like all the productions that go on in Wicklow now, you've been busy in TV recently with hidden assets, and it, it seems as someone who's been watching it for a little while, not not half as long as you, that it's never been a a boomier time for for you know TV and film in Ireland than it is now. But maybe I don't know. Is that is that your sense of it? Oh uh, yes, well, uh, I I get that sense only from talking to crews or or looking mm. for crews. Recently, we were doing hidden assets. I was fortunate able to use people that I wanted to use, but there weren't that many people available, and yeah. um, uh, and that's very often been the case. And um, because I've one foot in the camp here, I'm I'm in London, and um, uh, I know what's going on here. My wife works in the in the in the business as well, and. Um, you know, there's been it's been really flat here, relatively speaking, when you consider the scale of the industry here compared to Ireland, which has uh, managed just to remain pretty busy in the last uh, while. Um, and of course, that's a lot to do with uh, if studios are making films or whether they're independent films, uh, whether or whether it's uh, it's a TV production, the uh, UK based TV production shooting in Ireland. There are all kinds of reasons why there could well be proportionally more work in, in Ireland than in England. Um, I'm thinking now about the strikes and so on. I get to the mood when you, every director does, you know, or producer, when they start looking for cast. Yeah. Not for cast, well, for cast too, but particularly for crew. You start looking mm-hmm. for crew up uh, and you find, um, you know, they're, they're either the people you usually work with aren't available or, or, or people with the skills aren't available. Mm-hmm. And that's why yeah. Ireland is very, very good at uh, bringing people on. Um, I, I've been mentoring people on, on on almost everything I've done in Ireland in recent years. And, you know, you're obliged to do that. And I'm happy to do it. Um, yeah. Have somebody on the set who's um, working with you, watching you, and just seeing everything that's going on. And uh, I know that these people get, um, uh, it makes a huge importance. You know, it's, 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 of massive importance to them in their future career. Yeah, well done. Well, listen, finally, before you had all this success, I was reading an interview with you in a well-known national newspaper the other day, and you described your first job as one cleaning the tunnels in the London underground. Was that as miserable as it sounds? Yeah, when I first went to London, I did a, a lot of miserable jobs. Um, <laughs> and uh, that that's just one that stood out. Um they used to send teams down uh, at night to take the take the grime off the off the the, the roofs. Uh, it's stuff that would fall down on the tube trains. Oof. Uh, and they Oof. Would, and I like I said, I didn't last very long. <laughs> no, you were destined for other things. Well, listen, the Miracle Club is in cinemas, very importantly, from this Friday, the thirteenth of October. I've been talking to its long-serving director Thaddeus O'Sullivan. Thaddeus, thanks a million. Thanks, John. Take care. I wanted him to have a better life than I had. We would have. How did you manage it? How did you convince her to shut me out? Your mother did her best. But with your father dead, there was no one to reel you in. There was no talking to you. You were wild. Your mother forgave me. God punished me, didn't he? Taking them away like that. He punished all of us. Maggie Smith and Laura Linney there from The Miracle Club, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 13th of October. And you heard me talking to its director, Thaddeus O'Sullivan. Up next, the one and only John Banville on his favourite film. 
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now we haven't done our favourite movie slot in a few weeks on the show, but we are back with a bang this week. John Banville is a writer who needs little introduction, except to say that he's won the Booker Prize and his large collection of novels includes everything from the Book of Evidence to the Sea to more recent titles like The Singularities. Of course, he's also had huge success under another name as Benjamin Black, writing crime novels largely about Dublin detective Quirk, although the band uh black dichotomy is is collapsing a bit more of that anon he's due to be interviewed by dermot bulger at the redline book festival which runs from october 16th and i'm delighted to say he joins me now to chat about his favorite film john hello how are you hello i'm very well so listen your favorite movie you told me yesterday on the phone and i thought that makes perfect sense in a way it seems like a banville-esque movie and it's one of my favorite movies too will you tell our listeners what it is and why yes well i want to say that i'm not sure that it is my absolute favorite there are so many films i love and there are so many films that i haven't seen yet but it's certainly i think the greatest mainstream movie ever made and it's the third man made by Carl Reed and starring Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton. And it takes place, you know, in the aftermath of World War II, in essence, in a very divided Vienna. Is, is that part of the appeal? Oh, yes. It, it would be not the movie it is without the background of a devastated Vienna. Uh, the movie was made in 1949, I think, uh, and the city was still in rubble. Uh, so that's, Vane is very much a character in the film. And what is it that speaks to you so much about it? Well, the funny thing about the movie is that it shouldn't work. It's a, mm. you know, it's it's a pretty ordinary tale. And, you know, the direction is very mainstream, very completely conventional. Uh, the... This, the whole scenario just shouldn't work, but it does. It works triumphantly. And, of course, as with movies, as a famous screenwriter once said, nobody knows anything. Uh, you <laughs> never know what, what's, how a movie's made. But this just works at every level. I've watched it, I don't know, I suppose I've watched it maybe a dozen, maybe 20 times by now, and mm. I still can't find a flaw in it. Uh, it's dramatic. It's moving. It's funny in places. Uh, Graham Greene wrote a wonderful story for it. Uh, the producers wanted a happy ending. They were persuaded otherwise. At the ending it is superb. I'm not going to give it away, but no. it's, uh, because it's so down key, so 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 downbeat. The oft quoted scene is the one with Orson Welles uh, at the fairground, and he gives this famous kind of soliloquy. probably overstating it, but you know, talks about what the Swiss ever gave us. But I don't know how you feel about it. But like, I actually think that's quite a philosophically dark, you know, thing he's saying there, and yet it kind of gets used as "ooh, the cuckoo clock." What's your take on that that part of the movie where Orson Welles is actually showing up and being alive, contrary to what we thought? Well, of course, it's a wonderfully dramatic scene when, when Harry Lyme turns up. Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles. Uh, again, I won't describe it, but it's a, it's a beautifully shot scene. Uh, the the, the centre of the movie is very dark. Mm. Uh, it's a very bleak outlook. Graham Greene was very much a, a, a dark Catholic. Uh, he believed in hell. I'm not sure that he believed in heaven. <laughs> um, Harry Lyme... It, it, he and uh, uh, Holly Martin is played by Joseph Cotton, who is a sort of relatively innocent American. And Harry Lyme has been doing very bad things in, in Vienna and the black market. And he takes, uh, Harry Lyme takes Holly Martin's up in a, one of these enormous circular roundabout things. And they're way up in the sky. And uh, he makes a very dark uh, Harry Lyme makes a very dark speech saying, look at those little people down there. If you were given £60,000 each time one of them disappeared, would you take it? Now, there's no answer to it. We know what Harry Lyme's answer is. But Holly Martin's is that character that Graham Greene always has, a relatively simple, decent person. Uh, I'm not sure that such people actually exist, but Greene believed it. Uh, and then, you know, Holly is complaining about the, the, the morality of this and... Uh, Wells makes this famous little speech, you know, about Switzerland having 500 years of fraternity and 
piece and you know what did they produce the cuckoo clock whereas the renaissance had produced you know great art and great fun, yeah. great culture uh it was always said that that orson wells made this up on the spot uh, in fact i think it was in a footnote of all things to graham green's before he made the film, Graham Greene wrote a little novella just to give himself a sense of how the story would go, and I think it's a footnote in that. But Wells's genius was to spot the jewel uh, among the trash, mm. and this is one of the great one of the great moments in, in movie history. Yeah, and you mentioned there, you know, you still haven't seen a lot of movies. Do you watch the cinema a lot? Like, do you go to the cinema? Oh, I've been in love with the pictures since I was a little boy. Uh, right. I still am. I find the theatre hard to believe in because the people are actually real on stage and I keep waiting for the sets to fall down or the, <laughs> the leading man's trousers to fall off or something. Yes, I know with the movie that it's already been, it's it's made and it's, yeah. it's, it's this wonderful moving dream. Uh, I do think that, that cinema is the poetry of the people. Anybody can go and see any movie. Um and nobody ever feels intimidated by mm. how intellectually highfalutin the movie might be. When I was in my teens, my sister Mary and I used to come up from Wexford to go to the old Astor Cinema on Aston Quay to see Bergman films and uh, the, the new wave, Federico Fellini. Uh, and it was an absolute dream for us. Yeah. And do you watch, I'm, I'm just curious about John Banville's viewing habits. You love the cinema, but I, I think I heard you say before you love The Sopranos as well. I mean, you, you're fine with certain TV shows as well, I gather. Oh, I think there've been some superb, some superb television series. There's one that people don't seem to know, know much about. At least I haven't met many people who've seen it, one called Bloodline. Yeah. It was made about three or four years ago. In Key West? In Key West, uh, not actually Key West, but it's in the Florida Keys. Okay. I think it's an absolute masterpiece. And if yeah. you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix. It's easily available. Go and watch it. It's just superb. Sissy's paycheck uh, is, I think, magnificent. There's a scene at the end of it which is worthy of the Greeks. Yeah. And tell me this, I a little name drop here for you, but I interviewed Glenn Close a couple of years ago and she mentioned a movie that you were in, that, that, that she was in that you wrote and I mean you've I think written for TV as well so I mean as someone who's seen as you know this serious novelist uh, who labors over these you know award-winning books is is the experience of writing for film or indeed TV very very different and the fact that there are so many other people involved how do you find that or how have you found that in the past oh it's it's a completely different way of writing uh, in fact you mentioned Glenn Glenn said to me when she was doing the movie, she said, John, you're too much of a novelist. You see all this stuff between the dialogue. You don't have to do that. We'll do that. We're actors, uh, which was a good lesson for me because yeah. most novelists do tend to burble, uh, whereas a script has to be cut, paired back to, to, to its essence. I think Harold Pinter was a great uh, film script writer. He should have stuck to the movies. Interesting. I don't have to lie about your novels because I've read three of them, which, you know, might might be a high or a low hit rate for someone interviewing you. But I've read The Untouchable, The Book of Evidence and The Sea. And I was very taken. It's a couple of years ago now. You said something along the lines of you were getting tired of writing these long thought out narratives uh, and also in terms of your own reading you were nearly getting tired of reading those and maybe that's part of the reason that you started with the benjamin black books but then you take a book like singularities uh which seemed like a not to refer to you in the third person but a classic banville story is it is it the case that you you just you can't stop writing these novels even even if you wanted to no, I can't stop. I mean, what would I do? Um, my late wife used to say, yeah, you go into politics and destroy the world. Um, <laughs> I have to keep busy. Uh, yeah. In fact, the other day I had I just finished another crime novel and I had some reviews to do. And I had a long review to write on a Saturday. And I finished the review by lunchtime. And my desk was empty. I thought, my God, what am I going to do? Mm. In fact, I took a photograph of my empty desk and sent it to my agent and said, help me, what, what am I going to do? 
I would not know what to do with myself. I write 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I even write in my sleep. I'm a writing, <laughs> I'm a writing machine, a writing being. Mm. You do it all the time. And listen, at the Red Line Book Festival that's coming up, you're going to be interviewed by Dermot Bulger, uh, who's done this slot, and it might interest you to know he chose The Godfather as his favourite movie. But you you do plenty of interviews, and you're doing that one in public. I mean, and you'll be in fine hands uh, being interviewed by Dermot, of course. But is it your feeling that, you know, interviews and public appearances for your work, it's it's part of the process it, it gives it another life or is it just something you feel is is said to you, you should do this it'll help flog a few books or what's your take on kind of the public performance of of your work oh well I, you know i know i sound terribly uh, much more wonderful than i am but i don't need to do it <laughs> myself i think people like to see writers uh they like to hear writers speak uh, and it's it's you know it's it's a day out for people and it's a day out for me so mm. it's fun. Yeah. Also, I get to see people I don't see very many of them. You know, in the normal run of things. And tell me, we always ask people in this slot, particularly people who aren't in the film business per se, did you ever act at any stage in your life? I've spent my entire life acting. <laughs> I mean, on a stage or behind a camera, though. No, I couldn't. No. I wouldn't know where to start. I am absolutely. I have many active friends and many friends in, who act in cinema. Uh, I just, I, I don't know how they do it. To me, it's kind of, mm. it's a, it's a, it's a multiplication of the self. It's kind of magic. I don't know how they do it. And then, very finally, we always ask people who have children uh, in this slot about their favorite movie. Have you shown the Third Man to your children? And if so, what did they make of it? Oh, yes, my daughters and I used to watch it when they were young, and we practically knew all the lines. We could That and uh, Philadelphia Story. Ah. Uh, and, of course, Something Like It Hot, which Great. is a masterpiece as well. Yeah, well, you, you'll actually be titillated, possibly, or maybe that's overstating it. We had to ban Something Like It Hot from this slot because it was chosen too many times. But thankfully, you went for The Third Man. It's the favourite movie of Jan Banville, who you can hear in conversation with Dermot Bolger at the Red Line Book Festival. John, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Have you ever seen any of your victims? You know, I never feel comfortable on these sort of things. Victims? Don't be melodramatic. Look down there. Would you really feel any pity if one of those dots stopped moving forever? If I offered you 20,000 pounds for every dot that stopped, would you really, old man, tell me to keep my money? Or would you calculate how many dots you could afford to spend? Free of income tax, only. Free of income tax. Orson Welles there, wondering about the value of life when viewed from above. And of course, that was from The Third Man. I didn't play the cuckoo clock bit because we've played that several times on the show before. But that is from The Third Man. And it was the favorite movie of John Banville. And as I say, he is talking at the Red Line Book Festival, which takes place largely in the south of the city, in venues like the Civic Theatre in Talla, Rathfarnham Castle, Pierce Museum, all sorts of places. You can get more info at redlinefestival.ie and other speakers include people like Nicola Talent and indeed Francis Brennan. So do check that out. That is it for this week. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. All sorts of things on the show next week, including uh, a review of Flowers of the Killer Moon, the director of the new Paul Meskel, Saoirse Ronan movie, Foe, and lots more besides. I will just remind you that this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. And indeed, if you are listening on the radio, we are just over an hour away from the biggest rugby match since God knows when. And uh, come on, Ireland, I guess is how I'll finish the show. Thank you all for listening, and I'll talk to you all next week.